Um, if you want to turn with me to Psalm 22, Psalm 22, if you've got a Bible, maybe it's on the screen. Uh, just remove it there for the moment, if that's okay. I want to introduce this to you. I think this is one of the most remarkable passages of Scripture. It's quite unbelievable when you consider the significance of what I want to read to you. This is a Psalm of David. David writing over 3,000 years ago, is uh, making really a prayer of lament. He's experiencing suffering, and um, he's in pain. But what is all the more remarkable, and what we're going to focus on today, is that this passage is really, I would say primarily, about the person of Christ. In fact, Jesus says so. On the cross, he cries out those immortal words. We're going to, I'm going to read you in a moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in those days, they didn't have uh, the, the chapters and verses. So when Jesus uses that first line of the psalm, he's actually referring to the whole passage. So right in the moment of Christ's greatest agony and pain on the cross... Christ is saying, this psalm we're about to read is all about me. Clearly, the writers of the Gospels think the same. Matthew's Gospel references this uh, four times in one chapter. You'll hear the language as I read it to you. If you're, um, can you just turn me down maybe slightly? Um, you'll hear the, in the language that... Um, in this psalm, you'll, you'll be familiar to some of you who've read the Gospels. It speaks of those who divide his garments. It speaks of those who wag their heads at Christ. It speaks of um, the, the, the great accusation they make of Christ as he's on the cross when they say, He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Matthew, when he writes the Gospel, is wanting us to be absolutely clear that this psalm, written over a millennia before Christ's crucifixion, is written to tell us about that event. Remember Jesus on the Emmaus Road, after he's uh, been crucified um, and resurrected, he's speaking with two of his disciples walking the road. They don't recognize him yet. And it describes how he explains how all of the scriptures the prophets and the Torah, the, the, um, the, the law, they speak of him. Later on to his disciples, he says that even the Psalms speak of him. And this is perhaps the most obvious one. What I want to help you to see, what I want the picture I want you to have in your mind as we read this Psalm is Christ's crucifixion. And really what I want to suggest to you is this is a really rather remarkable Insight. This is Christ drawing us into his inner monologue. We are seeing the very thoughts and minds of our Savior, the mind of our Savior as he experiences the crucifixion. The first person perspective. Uh, one commentator said, This psalm is the doorway into the mystery of Christ's dying horrors. And I want to invite you, as I read this psalm, to, to step through this doorway, so to speak. I think it's an important image because, in a sense, almost just for a moment, you want to leave your kind of intellectual an analysis 
to the side and just allow yourself to enter into the picture that the psalmist is giving us. To imagine Christ speaking to us. Because that's what he's doing, speaking through this psalm, prophetically. A thousand years before it takes place, the Spirit of Christ is speaking to us. We can hear and see his enemies mocking and sneering at him. We can see and just glimpse something of his physical agony. And you'll see as the psalm goes on that it changes. We can even see something of the victory of the cross and the resurrection. So let's read it together. Hear Christ speaking on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Then he speaks again. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Think of the surrounding Pharisees, the crowd, jeering and shouting at the the crucified Christ. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, like a broken piece of pottery. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then the tone changes. Listen to this. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him. 
but he has heard when he cried to him. Speaking of his vindication. For from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even to the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness, the Lord's righteousness, to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Or in other words, it is finished. I hope with me you are persuaded that you can see something of the fact that this psalm speaks almost more powerfully of Christ than it does of David. He speaks of the ability to see his bones. He's speaking of the nakedness, that they stare at me and they gloat at me. He speaks of being pierced, of having his hands and his feet pierced. Surely the only way we can make sense of that is it's speaking about the crucifixion. He speaks of the way they divide his garments and cast lots for his clothing. The way the Roman soldiers, in the midst of the crucifixion, cast lots. They made a game of Christ's clothing. Surely you can see with me that this passage speaks about Christ. If we've established that, I want to answer four questions for you today as we look at this passage. The first is why. Why do we need to look at this passage The second is what? What is going on here? What is the suffering that Christ must go through on the cross? Thirdly, why did it happen? And fourthly, what now? What does this mean for us who worship our crucified, beautiful, suffering servant? So first of all then, why? I suspect some of you, as we approach the, the idea of the cross, as, we look, as I want to talk again about the crucifixion of Christ, I think there'll be some of you who go, even subconsciously, there's a little bit of an inward groan. There's a little bit of a sense of, yes, yes, not this again. We've kind of covered this, haven't we? Isn't this Christianity basics, Christianity 101? We've kind of heard it all before. And in fact, some of you who aren't Christians would look at this passage and say, why are Christians so obsessed with the cross? Why do they sing about it? I think all the songs we we sang this morning spoke of the cross. Why are they talking about the cross again? Well, I want to suggest to you that this this psalm and, and meditating on it and immersing ourselves in this great story, this great moment of history, I think it's the most significant moment of human history, is the best thing we can do. One commentator, uh, Theodore Beyser, a reformer from the 1500s, said this, and it may, since we can never sufficiently meditate on that battle of Christ on which our own victory depends, and in it 
It's talking about this psalm. In it, we may plainly behold not only how horrible it is to to fall into the hand of God, our judge, but also how great the loving kindness of God is towards his church. And finally, how sublime the mystery of God's wisdom is. Surely this psalm, among others, is worthy never to be put out of our hands and of our memory. Saying such is the beauty, such is the... The sublime wisdom of God displayed in this story that we should never put this psalm out of our minds and our hands. So why? Why? Well, let me give a few reasons why we should look at this. First of which is just the incredible privilege to go and to venture into the mind of Christ on the cross. When we go through the Gospels, we see the third-hand account of the crucifixion. We look at it, and we, we, we are, in one sense, with those who are witnessing Christ on the cross. But this psalm does something quite incredible. It takes us into Christ's own mind, so to speak, as he experiences the cross. We are experiencing the cross from the first person. You know, we live in an age where we all want to know and get inside the minds of our leaders. We speak of authenticity in leadership. Whenever any leader is being interviewed, you want to know their backstory, their family story, their inner motivations, you, because you're so aware that we all kind of present a front. We, we, we present a facade of ourselves. I want to say, what's really going on? Here we have the risen Christ, the Lord of all, and we are seeing what's really going on, so to speak, in him. He is revealing something quite profoundly personal, I think. It's an absolute privilege. Sounds outlandish. And by the way, incredible, the, the, just, just, just remember the, the way this speaks of the inspiration of Scripture. This is, this is David writing 1,200 years before Christ's crucifixion. And yet he speaks with such perfect clarity about the events that would take place a millennia later. This speaks of the great reality when we read the Bible that we don't think of it as just a series of different books written by human authors. It is that, but behind those human authors is one divine author. And if you needed any convincing of that reality, you only have to look at this psalm and say, how else can you explain that this psalm, written a millennia before the events it describes, would speak in such perfect clarity of the events that it would go on to speak of? How can you explain that any other way except that behind these human authors is the great spirit of Christ inspiring the words of God, the word of God. That's, by the way, why we take this Bible, why we take the words of God so seriously, because we're convinced it's not just a human author speaking to us. We believe we are receiving the, some would say impossible, the very words of God speaking to us. That's why we say this is, this is precious stuff. This is honey on the lips. This is, this is sweet stuff. This is, this is the word that should shape my life. This is the very God of the universe speaking to us. Even now as we read this psalm and as we, as we reflect on what he's saying, the, the word of God is being preached. God, the spirit of Christ is speaking. In fact, it's a fulfillment of the verse 25. For from, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. As a result of the events of the crucifixion, Christ will continue to speak to the great congregation, the assembly all around the world to this day. So see the incredible inspiration of scripture here. But really the real reason we need to look at this psalm is because you have to see what it cost him. 
You see, none of the crucifixion, none of the events we've described make any sense or really will, should, I would expect to resonate with you in any way until you realize this is a personal act. This is not an abstract act of martyrdom, not some event where Christ just kind of effectively gives up his life in some abstract way. No, this is a personal act. And the, the way to understand the cross, if you're looking into Christianity, the way to understand the cross, the idea at the center is one of substitution. It says, Christ himself became our substitute. That effectively, the suffering that we are witnessing in this psalm is suffering for you and instead of you. For you and instead of you. Stay, hold that in your mind as we consider the suffering that Christ goes through in this moment. It is suffering for you because effectively Christ takes your place. He takes the judgment that you deserve. He takes the punishment that you deserve on the cross. He becomes sin, takes the judgment that you deserve so that you can be forgiven, so that you can be reconciled to the living God. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's perhaps put very crisply, for our sake he made him, that's Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, this perfect, righteous, only innocent one, became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we might receive his righteousness, and he receives our sin and the judgment that we deserve. That is the great truth, that is the great idea at the center of the cross. But my concern is that for some of you, you know that, that that kind of rolls off the tongue. Jesus died for my sins that I can be forgiven. But the reason why we need to look at this is because it shouldn't just leave you cold. It's not a transaction, or perhaps it is, there is something of a transaction there, but it's not transactional. The real test, I would argue, actually, of someone who, if you really believe this, is not just that you can kind of, the words can roll off your tongue, Jesus died for my sins so I can be forgiven, No, it's that it has taken hold of your heart. The real test, actually, one test of whether you're a Christian is whether this truth brings you joy. And my concern is actually because we hear it so often, this idea kind of leaves us a little bit cold. Yes, yes, I know. And so we have to re-enter the story this morning. Reconsider this great suffering for you and instead of you See the suffering and see in this extent of the suffering that you see the extent of his love. You see the extent of his desire that he suffers because he loves you, because he desires you. See that in this great act. The last thing it should do is leave us feeling cold. In fact, I want to take you through this story, take you through this, so that actually it would foster a desire and a sense of awe and admiration for Christ. See, the great driving impulse underneath the Christian life, underneath a life of sacrifice and service and obedience and worship, underneath all the, the kind of actions or activities of the Christian life, I think is a conviction that Christ is beautiful. A sense of awe and admiration for the person of Christ. That sense of he is the most beautiful person who ever lived. He is the most noble king And I can but do nothing but obey him and surrender my life to him. That sense of awe and admiration, that sense of the conviction that Christ is the most beautiful or most noble king is what will drive the Christian life, will drive obedience when things are hard. You see, we are made for beauty as human beings. 
It's why we look at art or nature or hear a piece of music and our hearts are, are, are stirred. And, and, the, and there's something there, I think, just a gift of God, quite frankly, that, we, that he enables us to enjoy his creation. That's why we appreciate beauty. But I would argue there's something even greater than that. Because the appreciation of beauty and worship are intricately connected. That your appreciation for beauty is an order that you might appreciate the most beautiful one that is the living God. That as you see his beauty, his majesty, that is the impulse. That is ultimately what worship is. It says, what a hero. What a glorious savior. I can but bow. That is what worship is, and that is what I'm calling you to. There's a great danger that you will see these events, and they will leave you cold. And do you know what? It's in this passage. Verse 17 That I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. The people are watching Christ. They can see him in this moment, and they're staring and they're gloating. They are cold. They are blind to the great majesty and nobility that, they, that we can see, some of us can see. They are just looking at it going, okay, effectively I'm just gloating, just laughing at this guy. They see none of the beauty that I'm talking about. And that's my, my kind of challenge to you. The great test as you see this passage is, is your heart stirred? Are you drawn to the, the, the crucified Christ? Do you see his beauty? Because there's a very great danger that just like the people in this passage, you can just let it go by you. And not let your heart be gripped. And actually, that's a really big problem. It's a really big problem if you're a Christian. It's almost a sign that you might not be a Christian, actually. I don't want to throw that around, but I think that's something you've got to consider if this leaves you cold. See, my conviction is that Christ, when Christ is lifted up, he draws all men to himself. And when, what it's talking about there is this moment. In, um, in John chapter 12, it uh, describes, I think Jesus is describing this moment. When he says, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He is describing this moment that as he is lifted up, he will draw everyone to himself. And partly, I think that's the, the work of the cross, that because of the sacrifice he makes, we can be drawn to him. But partly, it's as we see him on the cross, we see him at his most majestic and his most glorious. And so he draws us to himself. That is what's going on here. So that's why we need to consider this. But let's, let's consider what. Let's just dive into the What? What is going on here? I want to challenge you to remember, to re-enter the horrors of the cross, to see what Christ was willing to go through, both for you and instead of you. To see what Christ was willing to go through, both for you and instead of you. The three things I want to suggest to you. The first is abandonment. You can hear the agony in Christ's words in the first line of this passage. You can hear... That agony when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a finite to us. Why have you abandoned me? even speaks of day and night, and there's different interpretations. One might be that daytime, he's crucified in the daytime, but of course we know that that, that for three hours before he dies, it turns, turns dark, it turns to darkness, turns to a form of nighttime. Maybe it's speaking of the nighttime of Gethsemane, the night before, where he's in agony. Maybe he's been, he's been in agony for day and night. The most, what you've got to understand here is the most excruciating part of the cross is not, by excruciating, that word excruciating, painful, comes from the cross, crux in the middle of it. So even that is speaking of the pain of this moment. 
the most excruciating part of the cross is not actually what human beings are doing to Christ. The hardest thing is that he is experiencing a moment of abandonment from the Father. And I'm not talking about passive abandonment. You hear, why, why have you forsaken me? And you think of someone who's going through suffering saying, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? It's more than that. It's active abandonment. It's active wrath. It's active judgment from the living God. Christ is experiencing separation. Man, the, the Christ, the man, is experiencing separation from the living God in that moment. He's experiencing his face turned away from him. He's experiencing judgment and wrath. And I wonder whether when I talk about abandonment, I don't think we really realize just how bad that is. Just what a horrifying idea. You can get some of the way there when you think of what a child feels when he feels totally abandoned, when he loses his parents and he's always searching for them, saying, where are my parents? There's a sense of utter dread. The source of security and life and everything I need is gone. You can get some of the way there, but it's even more than that because to be abandoned by the living God is an awful prospect. And this abandonment that Christ feels on the cross is a window into the awfulness of judgment, into the fate of, the, of all those, the fate that all of us deserve and all those without Christ are headed for. And what you've got to hear is this idea of abandonment. To understand it, you've got to understand that God himself is the source of all goodness in the world. And to be apart from that source of goodness is to be without hope, but to be without much more than just hope, to be without everything that's good in the world. One um, Luther, one writer, a guy called Martin Luther, some of you may have heard of him, um, said, said, makes, tells us why this is so awful. He says, Now God is life, light, wisdom, truth, justice, goodness, power, happiness, glory, peace, blessedness, and every good thing. Therefore, to be forsaken by God is to be in death, darkness, foolishness, falsehood, sin, wickedness, weakness, sadness, confusion, disorder, despair, damnation, and in every evil thing. That is what it is, means to be separate from the living God. To imagine a world without kindness. You know, little moments of random acts of kindness that make your day possible as some stranger says something nice for you. A world without love. A world without hope. What I'm trying to say to you is, even if you are without Christ in this moment, if you're not a Christian, you are still experiencing a world where you experience the goodness of God. It's what Christians call common grace. It's the idea that um, as you go through your life, because God is the king of the universe and created the world, he has put in it wisdom and goodness and um, peace, justice, truth, and those things have, have, have percolated into the world, that you experience them in all sorts of ways, even if you've never had a relationship with Christ. To really experience abandonment is far worse than just today not to be in relationship with God. It's to experience utter separation from all that is good in the world. It's an awful prospect, and it should remind us of the awfulness of judgment, of separateness from the living God. That is what really ultimately makes the notion of hell so unappealing. It's because it's separation from all that is good. By the way, it's what makes heaven so appealing. It's because you're with God for eternity. Life, eternal life is not just this kind of vision of kind of living on the clouds, getting, like kind of eating everything you want. It's a picture of being with the living God. That's what makes it appealing. So Christ's abandonment is a vision, a window into the awfulness of judgment. We could take it the other way, by the way, and say, 
it's the opposite of what you experience. There's a great irony that as Christ experiences abandonment, we experience adoption. What I'm trying to say is, see the awfulness of what Christ experiences by, seeing, by tasting and remembering the goodness of what you experience as a Christian. You experience communion with God. You know those moments where, where you experience something of the closeness of Christ, something of the sense of he is listening to me, he has answered my prayers, he's, he's with me in this moment. A prophetic word that speaks directly into your life. The sense, hopefully, many of you experience on a fairly regular basis that, that Christ is present with me, that that communion should taste sweet. Take that sweetness, take that gift, cherish it all the more when you think that Christ was willing to be abandoned for you, was willing to experience the bitterness of, of abandonment and, and the lack of presence so that you could experience such a sweet presence. So the first thing you experience is abandonment. The second thing is humiliation and mockery. See, the thing about this crowd is they don't just take Christ's life from him. They take him, they rob him of his dignity. See the scale and the vigor of the evil that Christ is facing. He describes his enemies as strong bulls of Bashan. Pharisees who've got fat. These, these Bashan's bulls are very fat bulls. You should know that. Uh, and, and they're well fed. And he's saying, you are the fattened, basically spiritual elite who've got fat off the, off the, off the, uh, the wealth of the people they're leading. They're a corrupt and unfaithful group. When we, bulls in scripture are not good animals. They are heifers who are disobedient, effectively. He's saying, this fattened elite roar around him. The animals he gives us are dogs, bulls, and lions. They are together an intimidating sight. I want you to imagine for a moment these bulls of Bashan raging around him, shouting, mocking, attacking, but all united in a kind of bloodthirsty rage. That's what we see in the crowd, isn't it, in the Gospels, as they have been whipped into a storm by the Pharisees, shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Dogs who desire the, the, essentially the death of their prey. That's what we're watching, a kind of animalistic attack. See the mocking. See the cross is fundamentally an act of humiliation. It's a, it's, that's true for everyone in the, who is crucified. It's the, it's the great way that Rome would say, this victim of this crime does not cross us effectively. We will humiliate our victims. We will hang them naked on a tree. It's uncomfortable to speak of this, and I, and I think that just gives us a sense of how uncomfortable it is to, to have been there, to experience it. Hear the crowd mocking and jeering him, scorning him, despising him, making a mockery of his claims. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. It's no wonder that Christ uses these words in verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man. Isn't there an incredible irony there? The one through, through whom every man was made, in one sense, becomes lower than a man. He brought great dignity to humanity by the incarnation, by becoming a man. He brought great dignity to the office of humanity by becoming a man. And here, this is how we repaid him. By making him less than a man. And by the way, when I say we repaid him, I think it's important that we understand, even if we're Christians, that if it was not for Christ's work in us, we would be with these crowd, with the crowd, mocking and sneering. Because in a sense, the crowd continues to this day. Those who mock and sneer 
I hate to say it, I was on the train. One of the, thing, the final thing that convinced me to preach this passage this week, I was in a train with a guy with a tattoo of Christ being pierced by Satan, and it was gruesome. But I thought, you have no idea of, the, of, of, the, what, you, of what you have on your arm. I'm, I'm 90% sure it was not intended as a kind of act of worship. It was a sobering moment that the mocking and jeering continues to this day. And we would be there too if Christ hadn't worked in our hearts. Modern man sneers at the very notion of God. So we relive this moment in one sense to this day. See the great offense of the great worth and dignity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who made the heavens and the earth and who is deserving of all your worship. And what we did, what humanity does to him is it desecrates him and attacks his dignity and robs him robs him of, his, of, of his, his visible worth and dignity. And he does it willingly. He endures it willingly. Isaiah 51, he describes another prophetic passage. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Christ willingly embraces this humiliation. And to us, it feels almost sacrilegious for that reality. Finally, weakness under death. We see in this passage, really we see the manhood of Christ, as well as he is both God and man, and we see his manhood in the sense that we see the death of Christ in its, in its kind of, in really graphic detail. What I mean by this is some of us, you might have seen images of Christ, in the, uh, you know, like paintings, medieval paintings, where you see Christ almost looking kind of superhuman, like a kind of Greek Adonis, or kind of like wearing... I can use this without saying feeling sacrilegious, kind of fake tan almost, like this kind of, uh, this kind of slightly um, gl- de- over-dramatic picture of Christ in medieval art. You know what I'm talking about. And it misses something of the weakness and the desecration of the cross. That death is more than just taking a life, it's a destruction of his body. You hear it when he talks about being poured out like water, blood flowing from his body, bones weighing heavy as he's hung from the cross. Speaks, I poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Speaks of his strength, his bodily strength ebbing away in that moment. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. It speaks of broken pot, a broken clay pottery on the floor. Almost no, there's no life in him. And finally, you lay me in the dust of death. He says, God was behind all of this. He intended it. And by the way, in all of this, we must marvel not just that he suffers, but how he suffers. See this great hero enduring willingly. See the fact that if he was just a man, which he, in one sense he is a man and God, we would expect someone in this kind of experience to raise a fist of fury at God. But he does none of that. He continues to trust in God through this passage. Yet you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, even towards the end. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me. He trusts. And that is actually a really important point as we look at Christ on the cross is that he endures through the suffering. The great hero shows perfect courage in the face of this awful suffering because he remembers that ultimately God will um, vindicate him. 
the victory will be evident to all. We hear this in Hebrews 12, don't we? When he says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That's why Christ is our great example for walking through suffering. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Christ knows how the story ends. The hero walks through such profound suffering because he knows that the Father will vindicate him. He shows perfect trust in the Father. Christ never wavers. He drinks up the cup of God's wrath. He endures the humiliation and the agony, and we see it both in this passage, the agony and the trust. We see our Savior in all his glory and majesty. It's simply marvelous. So why? If this event is so beautiful... And it is, I think, the most profoundly beautiful picture of Christ. We must also understand the significance. Why did he do this? And this is why I think we can say it's the most significant event in world history. It's not hyperbole to say this is the fulcrum, the pivot point that all human history rests upon. You see it even in this passage, the way that things change in verse 21 and 22. Save me from the mouth of the lion, and then you have rescued me. Me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. This is a picture that actually we need to remember that the cross is a moment of victory, of triumph, of celebration. That Christ is delivered. That that despair turns to rejoicing that this is the cause for great celebration. In fact, he says, tell my brothers in verse 22. In Matthew 28, he uses brothers. The only time to describe the apostles as brothers is is right after the crucifixion, when he tells the two women who've seen him, go and tell my brothers. Another wonderful connection between the old and the new. It says, as much as we see the, the graphic suffering and beauty of Christ in this, we must Make this a moment of triumph and celebration. That, that good has defeated evil. That three days after his crucifixion, Christ was resurrected. And in doing so, he triumphed over the forces of evil, both in man and in Satan, that sought to destroy him and sought to thwart the very plans of God. Christ triumphed over death, triumphed, triumphed over evil, and has the last laugh. We see the victory of Christ even in this psalm. The real why here, we even see here the great beauty or or significance of the cross. We see the great world-changing impact of this moment. It's not just a moment that captures the love and the courage of Christ. We see the significance because it is through his death that all men and women are drawn to Christ. Well, not all men and women, but all types of people are drawn to Christ as a result of his death. Can you see it in this passage? He speaks of the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. The poor are drawn towards the living God. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. The rich are being drawn too, rich and poor. And right there in the middle, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nation shall worship before you. This is a pivot point because from this moment on, all people are welcome. 
to the living God. All who put their trust in Christ, rich and poor, all people, all nations who walked in darkness and rejection of the living God are being drawn to the living God and have access to God through the sacrifice of Christ. See the significance of this moment that through Christ's sacrifice now, it's like the nations that walked in darkness, the light has been switched on and they turn around and they can see Christ and they are being invited to the living God to worship him. This is the means by which God will draw a people from every different nation on the planet to worship him. And this comes true. It's actually happened. Over the last 2,000 years, we've seen the gospel go out, the early church in the New Testament. We see them going from Judea and Samaria, and we see them going around the, uh, much of the known world, and we've seen it then continue through the last 2,000 years. This same narrative of the nations. That's why we're all here. <laughs> Unless any of you are from the people of uh, the Jewish people, the reason you're here is because this happened. <laughs> because Christ was crucified and you're being, dr- you're being invited in to believe and put your trust in him. And you're part of the people of God that he's gathered together. So see the, the, great, the great leveling that this moment is. It says all people are welcome to the living God. Rich and poor. All nations invited in because of this great act of loving sacrifice. Just think for a moment, just outside in, if you're not, just imagine the absurdity, the, 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 almost the, the kind of ridiculousness of this, that this Jewish rabbi was God incarnate, that his death was actually the payment for sins for humanity, such that all who believed in him would not perish but have eternal life, would live with God for eternity, that he was resurrected, that proved he was no mere man, and that this news then traveled the world and millions to this day, put their faith in Christ and took hold of it. It's like almost unbelievable, almost so unbelievable that it's true, that when you see the incredibleness of what's, what's taken place, you can but marvel at the great plans of the living God. And Christ predicts it all in this passage. A thousand years before it happened and 3,000 years before our day. Isn't that incredible? Ultimately, the great result of this work is that God is glorified. See in verse 30, 31. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. The generations that follow will be told of the majesty of God. And then they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Through the cross, this is the moment that says God is just. That he has justice. And justice has been done in Christ's death. So the justice, the righteousness of God is being demonstrated every time the cross is being proclaimed around the world. So finally then, what now? I'll just say two minutes on this. The cross cannot stay as an event. It cannot stay as a moment in history. It is reproduced in the life of every believer. We, we hear the invitation of Christ as we see the graphicness of his suffering. We take up our cross to live a life of sacrificial love. In one sense, remaking the beauty of Christ in our lives to this day. The cross lives on in every one of you who has put your faith in Christ, or it should. Now, when we've just looked at the cross, here again, Christ's words in Mark 8. Take up your cross and follow me. Doesn't that mean something now? (laughs) Take up your cross. Be willing to lay down your life. Be willing to make 
One act of death in coming to Christ in the first place, of laying down your life, of dying to a life about yourself and pursuing your own needs and instead living for God ultimately. It's one act of death, but it's thousands of little acts of death. Every time you choose to die to sin, every time you choose to die to those desires that rise up within you and feel almost irresistible, We're called to an almost ongoing death to carry about with us the death of Christ as we die to pride and we say, I'm not the center of the universe. As we die to lust and say, I will bring these sexual appetites under control. As we die to anger and we seek to live at peace with all the people in our lives who frustrate us, including the people who had a late night rave till 2 a.m. or whenever it was last night outside my flat. We die to that moment by moment. Every, keep dying to it as it's happening. <laughs> we say, why? Because isn't Christ worthy of those deaths? The, one, the great worthy saviour who is willing to die. We then image his death in many, many little deaths to all the sinful desires that come up within us. And we take a Christ-like posture. We take this beautiful, courageous, sacrificial love into every part of our lives. We look radically different. We no longer seek to serve our own interests. Instead, we seek to prioritize the interests of others, to consider those in need, to take seriously the interests of those around us, and to become a presence of the love of Christ in that place. We live to please God and we live to demonstrate his beauty. Just think for a moment, the call to be like Christ, the call to be sanctified, that is the journey of the Christian life, is to become beautiful like Christ. Isn't that an exciting prospect? Some of you have given up on the sanctification project. You look at your life and you just think, I feel really messy. And maybe it just feels a bit kind of hard and a bit, oh, I've just got to keep kind of conforming in my life to Christ. You are called to become beautiful like Christ. It's an exciting thing that Christ would transfer his beauty in some small way and put it onto you. So we die to self-preservation. We die looking only to our needs. And we live to seek to live lives of being poured out giving our time and our money and our talents to serve the common good, to serve and to love the people around us and to serve the family of God. And of course, in all of that, we go on proclaiming Christ. When you see the great hero of history walking through such suffering and winning such an incredible victory, how could we not, brothers and sisters? How could we not make it our life's mission to proclaim this great hero? Like, this story is the greatest story that ever told. And I don't mean story as in like it didn't happen, but story in the sense of it speaks most deeply to our hearts. If this is true, and I'm convinced it is, then the world needs to know about it. We can do nothing else. This hero has a story that deserves to be told. Far be it that it, this story might finish with us. <laughs> Far be it that we would experience all the riches of Christ, but not go and proclaim, go and fulfill the prophecy of this, this psalm, which says that this will be proclaimed to the generation yet unborn. That's you, brothers and sisters. You fulfill this psalm as you go and proclaim the risen Christ. But our ultimate response, even when we hear that calling, is to know that we will never quite, in this life, image that beauty and that courage, that self-sacrifice. The answer to all of this is marveling at the risen Christ, marveling at this sacrificial, beautiful, suffering saviour and celebrating him. That's what I want to invite you to do now as we come to worship. We have a moment to marvel and celebrate the beauty of the risen Christ.
Because we say we can do no other when we've seen this sacrifice.